Glad you're here, really, really glad, and super glad to be walking into this text this morning that Lauren just read. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Rob. If you're new to fellowship, we have two primary teachers, which is a little different. We teach in team. We also have two campuses here at Brentwood. We do live teaching at both. So while I'm here at Franklin Lloyd's at Brentwood, and then we switch, we're in the same series together. So we're one church in two locations, two congregations. And Lloyd and I, you know, part of the beauty of working together is you get different perspectives on a text, but we also work really hard to connect the dots between message to message. And this morning, we start a little bit of a five-week mini-series within a bigger series. We've been in the Gospel of John for a year and a half as we go through it, you know, verse by verse. This morning, we begin five weeks in John 17, which is also known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, which sounds like a very religious, you know, way to say it. But I think you're gonna find this is incredible. That John chapter 17 is one of the high points of all of the scripture. Now, why is that, you say? Well, Imagine um, Jesus has been with these followers, especially the, the 12 men that have been his disciples for three years, you know, probably a little bit over three years now. He's been walking with them, living with them, doing miracles with them, eating with them. And he's coming to the very end of that time. And, and all of the last three chapters or four chapters of John, 13, 14, 15, 16, have all been his final words to them. And he's told them he's about to leave and he's about to die. They don't understand it. They're concerned, they're worried, they're confused. And he ends the time with a prayer. And you might think, well, you know, that's a nice way to end, you know, what's a big deal about that? You all, this is God the Son speaking to God the Father, and we get to hear the words. This is God talking to God. And so what Jesus does at the end of his ministry, he's, he kind of just pulls back the curtain and he goes, I'm gonna invite you disciples into the intimacy of the relationship that I have with my father in heaven. And I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna talk to him about you. And guess what? He's gonna talk to the father about us too. We're in this prayer. So stick with us for the next five weeks, and I can't wait to dig into it together. So let's start, where else to start? The very beginning, a very good place to start. Um, reference? There you go, Sound of Music. I don't know why that was on my mind. <laughs> okay, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is John 17, verse one, first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what are these words? Well, on one hand, it's all the words he said in the upper room. He's just been with them, the Passover supper. It's all just happened. And so all those, going back to all the way to John chapter 13. On the other hand, it's most immediately the last verse of chapter 16. I don't have this on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, just glance at it with me. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And then the very next thing it says is after he'd spoken these words, then he's going to pray. And what I love about that connection is he's beginning right then to intercede for them so that they might have peace. He's beginning right then to do the work that the whole weekend will be about, ultimately going to the cross, going to the tomb, raising from the grave. He's doing all this so that they may have peace, that they may have wholeness. That's the Hebrew idea for peace that they may have life that is true life. And he's starting right now by interceding for them. So, so I've told you these things so that you may have peace. You won't find that in the world, but I'm gonna overcome the world. 
And then he begins to pray on their behalf to the Father. So he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and let's just begin this prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Okay, key word. If you have a pen or pencil and you like to mark up your Bible, which I encourage you to do, circle the word glory or glorify. You're gonna see it already two times in verse one. And then if you skip down to four and five, and I'll go ahead and mark it now, you're gonna find it three more times. So we'll come back and, and I'll teach these verses in a minute, but let me just mark that up. Okay, so five times in five verses, the word glory or some version of the word glory shows up. As we're studying our Bibles, that should be a, like a, a bell should ring. It's like, oh, repetition, key word. What, what does glory really mean? And we need to talk about glory for a few moments here because we tend to have the wrong idea about glory. It's become to us sort of a religious kind of word. It doesn't mean anything anymore. So what does, what does glory mean? Well, you may know the New Testament was written in Greek and the Greek word that's being translated here is doxa. That means splendor or brilliance. It's sort of a bright light idea, that's doxa. But Jesus was likely speaking in Aramaic, almost certainly in Aramaic, which is closer to Hebrew than Greek. Aramaic's very similar to Hebrew. And of course, his audience, Jewish, good Jewish boys, his disciples, they would have been more familiar with the Hebrew word for glory, which is kavod. So Jesus likely would have been saying the word kavod or, or a, a very similar word to the word kavod. And then it was translated later into doxa in Greek. So let, let's talk about kavod for a minute. Doxa means brilliance, kavod means weight. And it can literally mean if someone's heavy, like a large person, they would have great kavod. But it's usually used in Hebrew to mean more of a metaphorical weight. So someone has a good reputation, or someone is a person of importance, or a person of power, sometimes a person of wealth, they have kavod. You ever been in a party, maybe waiting for like the guest of honor to show up, and, and you know, everyone's talking amongst themselves, and then the, the person that's being honored walks in the room, and the attention of the room all shifts toward that person? That's their kavod, that's their weight. You sort of just feel it, sense it in the room, if you've ever met a celebrity. You know, you go up, introduce yourself. You just sort of feel their kavod, the weight of it. Last September, a friend of, of Jody and mine invited us to attend the, the induction ceremony of Ringo Starr into the Musicians Hall of Fame in downtown Nashville. I'm looking around the room. We got some younger people. Everyone know who Ringo Starr is? <laughs> he was the drummer for the Beatles, okay? Now, if you don't know who the Beatles were, I, I, I can't help you. <laughs> the most famous band of all time, okay? And he's one of the surviving members still alive and, and still doing some art and some really interesting things. And he was the drummer for the Beatles and he was being inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame. And we came in this room, Ringo wasn't in there yet, but there were a lot of other famous Nashville musicians, most of whom I don't know, but my friend was whispering in my ear, that's so-and-so, he recorded this and that. Oh, that's so-and-so, you know, you probably know this song. Oh, yeah. And you could sort of feel the cavode of these individuals, like the circle of people gathering around to talk to them. But then in walked Ringo Starr. And, and the whole room just shifted. And, and he came and he's, you know, glad handling and, you know, shaking people's hands. And he sat down in this 
kind of throne kind of chair. I mean, it sounds silly, but they'd actually kind of made a throne for him. It, well, but here, here's the point. He got inducted in the Hall of Fame and it was clear to everyone that Ringo's kavod was weightier. His glory was more brilliant than the others in the room, right? And, and he was being glorified in that way. And, and some of you might think you shouldn't glorify someone that's not God, and, you know, but, but just hang with me here. In the Hebrew context, it didn't always have a spiritual context, a spiritual meaning. It's weight, it's substance, it's, it's even brilliance. And so when Jesus asks the Father, glorify me, you're thinking, oh, Jesus wants glory. Not so fast. That the Son, which is me, Jesus speaking, may glorify you. The very first prayer Jesus prays is he asks the Father to glorify him, but not so that he'll be great, not so that he'll have glory, so that the glory of the Father would just bounce right off of Jesus, reflect right off of Jesus, out to the Father who sent it. And, and what we see here is, is the, the back and forth glorification, if you will, Father and Son. And, and this is gonna give us a glimpse into the heart of the Trinity, and this is about to get really deep. Okay, we're gonna talk about some deep things. And, and I, hope, I hope you're fine with that. And then you know, I catch myself thinking, of course they're fine. They came to talk about God, not football, Rob, <laughs> you know, and not just talk about God, hear from God. Why wouldn't he speak deep things to us? So get ready. We're gonna go into the deep end of the pool. L- look now at verses four and five. Jesus is saying, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Do you, do you see what, what, what's happening here? Is God is describing his relationship within, between Father and Son. And it's a, rate, a relationship of mutual honor, of mutual glory flowing back and forth between the two. And that's been going on since before creation of time. Now, when you and I tend to think about God We may know theologically that God is three, but we oftentimes don't realize the implications of that. You know, Trinity, God is one, God is three. How can those both be true? He is one essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. One essence, eternally existing in three persons. The word person is important. It's not one God who sometimes is Jesus and sometimes is the Spirit and sometimes is the Father, that, that, like three modes of God. That's not biblical theology. Three persons that are so one in mind and one in will and one in heart that they are truly one essence. And they're three persons. God is as much a community as he is one being, he is both. And I think in our culture, we tend to lean a little bit more toward the oneness and we don't talk enough about the diversity of God, the, the tri-personality of God. Three persons, one essence. Now, why am I emphasizing this? You all, if he's three people, that means he has a relationship within himself. The members of the Trinity interact with each other. They talk to each other. They communicate to each other. And Jesus is offering us in this prayer a behind-the-curtain glimpse at some of the conversations of the Trinity. And what's it about? 
glorifying each other. Jesus glorified me, so I may glorify you. You glorified me on earth, now I'm gonna glorify you. Glorify me with the glory we had together before the earth started from all eternity past. The Father, Son, and Spirit have been in a relationship of mutual honor, of mutual deference, of mutual glory. Now, I know this is a little bit heady, but I wanna talk about why I think this matters. Why would God spend eternity glorifying himself, the three persons of the Trinity glorifying God? Is it because God needs a a little more to his ego? Is God lacking in anything? Right, there's a right answer to that question. What is it? God lacks nothing. He doesn't need more glory. He's not lacking assurance of himself. He doesn't need his ego to be stroked. So why have the three persons of the Trinity spent eternity glorifying one another? Because that's what you do when you love someone. When you love someone, you lift them up. When you love someone, you can't stop talking about them. You can't stop saying to them, you're so beautiful or You're such a good listener. Or I love the way that you do this. You see, grandparents in the room, you can't stop talking about your grandkids. Why? You love them. Your heart is for them. You're showing pictures. You're glorifying your grandkids. That's what you're doing. Married couples in the room, especially newly married couples in the room. You can't stop talking about each other. You can't, yeah, I met someone, mom and dad, you know, you're gonna glorify that person. We don't think of it that way, but what you're doing is you're, you're mutually edifying, you're mutually lifting up, you're, you're, you're exchanging compliments. Now for us, there's always, in our humanness, it's never from pure motives, is it? There's always selfishness. There's always, I'm gonna compliment you so that you'll you know, compliment me. There's always some of that going on in our ego. None of that exists in God. God needs nothing. God is perfectly whole. The members of the Trinity constantly lift each other up and honor each other and glorify each other. Why? Because they love one another. And so you all, you have to understand God as a community of pure love. Perfect, pure love. That's what the Bible says God is. So the same author that wrote John's gospel wrote three little short letters later in the New Testament, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And 1 John, you know what he says? He gives us the clearest and shortest definition of God in the whole Bible. He says, God is love. And when he wrote that, I don't think he was meaning God loves us, although that's true and we'll get there. I think he was describing the essence of God himself is love. How could you have love if God was unipersonal? Instead, he's tri-personal, he's a community, and that community is so defined by love that you could describe God's essence as love. Are are you tracking a little bit with this? We don't tend to think rightly about God this way, and and we must for for this to make sense and for it to apply to ourselves, because I promise this is going to get very practical. So what you have here, even in this first sentence of Jesus saying, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We've been doing this since eternity. We're entering into this hour, this special moment. 
The hour, by the way, is always a reference to the death of Jesus and the events of, of the weekend, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection. That's the hour, and it's finally come. The Father, Son, and Spirit have known this hour is coming from eternity past. And Jesus saying, the hour has come. Glorify me in, in death. We'll talk later on about what it means for God the Father to glorify him in death. But, but I've got to say one more idea about the essence of God in this. And, and this is one step deeper into the pool. If you can follow me and, and you're willing to come here. If the essence of God himself is love, the Trinity is love, then what I think that means is love is the heart of the universe. Love is the ultimate reality. I heard Tim Keller talk about this and he made the point. He said, you know, ancient worldviews and modern worldview have something in common that they both believe that the heart of the creation or the heart of the universe is violence, not love. He described it this way. Ancient worldviews, a polytheistic view of God's warring it out, fighting it out. And if you read the creation myths of the, of the ancient peoples, ancient religions, that they believe the, the earth came to be between the gods fighting. You know, personal violence between the deities is what created the, the, the world. We don't believe that. Modern worldview is that the creation came to be through impersonal violence, through, through balls of gas and through survival of the fittest over billions and billions of years. That's essentially an impersonal systematic violence that has led to everything we see around us. Christianity is the only worldview that says at the very heart of things is love, not violence. The very heart of reality is a tri-person God and all the creation that we see around us is an overflow of his essence, which is love. Now, if you can track with me that Jesus is pulling back the curtains and we're seeing a glimpse of this triune God loving, the Father loving and glorifying the Son, the Son loving and glorifying the, 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 the Father, the Spirit, by the way, which is talked about in chapter 16 as his purpose is to glorify as well. If, if you can track with me so far, that, that's idea number one. Glory is being exchanged. Idea number two is all about eternal life. And the question is, where do you and I come in on this? This is where verse two comes in. Jesus says, glorify the son so that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. That's our second key word. It's gonna show up two times. Notice that Jesus is saying one of the ways that you, Father, have glorified me is by giving me authority over all flesh. What is all flesh? That's just all of us, all people, all living things. What is the purpose of the authority? To give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Jesus used his authority to give life to us. And I think when we understand what that life is, that, that's where your mind's gonna start hopefully being exploding because my mind's been exploding the last two weeks as I've been thinking about this. What is eternal life? If Jesus' purpose was to bring life, eternal life, what is that? You and I, when we think of eternal life, we usually just think of the life that starts after we die. Eternal life is living in heaven forever. It, it's not less than that. 
but it is more than that. And you don't have to wait till you die to get it. Jesus is gonna define eternal life for us. Notice exactly what he says. This is eternal life, that you may know, that they may know you, the Father, and me, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice Jesus did not say, and this is eternal life, that you go to heaven, that they would go to heaven when they die and, and you know, float around like angels someday. You know? Now, that doesn't mean we won't be in heaven when we die, but it's so much more than that. He's defining eternal life differently. He's defining it as knowing God. This word know is not intellectual knowledge, good theology, it's relational knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. The Hebrew concept of knowing uh, was such a powerful concept. That's how the, the, the most intimate relationship between a husband and wife would be described using that word. What Jesus is saying here is this is eternal life that they might be intimately connected to you, Father, and to me, whom you've sent. What I think he's saying is this is eternal life. That they, the people, might be brought into the union of love that is our relationship. That they might know what you and I have known, Father, since before creation began. This mutual honoring and, and deference and and even glorification, this love that is true, pure love at the core of all reality, that they might be invited into that kind of love. Y'all, why do you think God made the universe? If he is, as scripture describes, a whole perfect triunity of love, he lacked nothing he didn't have to create others in order to love him. He already had love. He didn't have to create others to glorify him. He already had that union in himself. Why did he create? I think Jesus is saying he created to share. He created so that we might be brought in. Jesus is saying my mission that you gave me is to give eternal life. What is eternal life? intimacy with God. And what will you find in intimacy with God? Peace, joy, wholeness, flourishing, fullness, meaning, satisfaction. It's everything you wake up day in, day out chasing. It's everything you crave. Our search for life that is true life, that's what this is. Every decision you've ever made in your life has been made because you're trying to find life that is true life. Why did you go to the college you went to? Why did you marry the person that you married? Why did you move to the place you moved? Because you think there's a little more life in that decision. You think that decision is gonna bring you more toward fullness. This is how we're wired as human beings. We're like bugs searching for light. And Jesus is saying, I've come to give them that kind of thing, that kind of life, and it exists. And it's in the knowledge 
of the triune God. You see, you begin to see how we are connected to this. Let me say this as clearly as I can, even though it's such an incredible idea, I can't do justice to it. When Jesus says his mission is to bring people to eternal life, which is exactly what he's saying here, he means he's determined to bring humans into the very center of the eternal self-giving love that he and the Father and the Spirit have enjoyed together since before the world was created. He's determined to bring us into the very center of that kind of love. And that is exactly where this high priestly prayer is going. I can't stop thinking about this. I don't even know if this connects with you. you know? It's a little bit of a different way to think about eternal life. And, and again, it's not less than, it's more than. And by the way, this doesn't mean that our eternal existence is gonna be like you know, invisible spirits in some kind of um, union of, of ecstatic love. I, I don't think that's the picture scripture gives us in Revelation. Scripture gives us a picture of, of a new earth with, with trees and rivers and, and you know, earthy things, yet all redeemed. And it gives a picture of us in new bodies redeemed. But what will we experience on the new earth in our new bodies? Union with the Trinity. And therefore we will lack nothing. Now, if you think I'm going a little too far to talk about, you're saying we're gonna be one with God, you know, I don't know about that. Glance down at the end of the chapter. Let me read to you verses 20 through 23 and and, and let this blow your mind a little bit. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, by the way, he's talking about the whole church. That includes you and me. He's praying for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's what we have available to us. Union with God, the love of God, we're being invited into this. This is eternal life. And I I wanna make this very practical because my fear in this message is it's so theological that people don't, doesn't change them in any way. And, And A, I think that that's a faulty logic because I think the way you think about God changes everything about how you live. But let me drop it down a little bit and give some application here. If this is truth about God, if he is love in essence, and he created us to be moved into that love, to enjoy it and experience it with him for all eternity, then he's pursuing you. He's on to you. So much so, he will graciously allow many of your plans to fail. He will lovingly frustrate at times 
your quest for fullness without him. He's wooing you toward him. Do you see? And that's his soul full purpose because that's the way that he is glorified. That's what Jesus is saying. He's glorifying us even so that the glory would reflect back on him. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. Here's something practical from this passage today. If God loves you and he's intentional with everything he does, then where you are right now is not an accident. And, and you can take that where you are relationally, where you are physically, where you are in your age, where you are in your literal physical seat. None of it's an accident. He's leading you somewhere. He's wooing you somewhere. And that somewhere that he's always leading, always wooing, is in the same direction of oneness that he and the son enjoy together. The same direction of fullness of love. The same direction of eternal life, you see. Eternal life is in God. And so this new year, as you think about the year to come and you've made your resolutions or you've had your themes or your hopes for this year, I can promise you they're all trying, hoping for a little more fullness of life. Jesus wants to connect the dots for you to him. Better health, more meaning, better relationships, new opportunities. We all want peace and joy and adventure and flourishing. Jesus says, that kind of life's in me. It's in knowing me. So my question for us is, what step will you take toward God? That, that's as applicable as I can get. What, what practical step will you take to move toward intimacy with God? I know some in the room, you don't ha really have a relationship with God. Maybe you're, you're religious and you kind of do some things or believe some things, but you don't really have a relationship with God. Your step, your invitation to respond to this morning is to trust Jesus for life that is true life. I hope one thing this text did for you this, this morning was to give you this picture of God that is so uh, high and amazing and and, and incredible that you would realize you don't fit in there to that kind of love, to that kind of purity without help. <laughs> you know, I love the image that Brian gave us earlier of Jesus covered with. Do you think you and I, apart from intervention, could waltz our way into the perfect, pure love that is the Trinity and say, here I am, I know you've been waiting for me. I hope this causes you to lean on Jesus, to grab onto him. You see, in order to get in on that, you have to be with someone who already is in on that. Jesus is your ticket in. Grab onto him. Let, let him just usher you into the very presence of the Trinity. And that happens through faith. It's a simple belief. I need help. And Jesus came so that his life might be my life. He lived the life I couldn't live. He died the death I deserve. I believe, I cling to him in faith. And then you're ushered into eternal life. That's the gospel. Many of you this morning, your first step is simply believing that. For everyone in the room, wherever you are in your relationship to God, you have a chance to take a next step. What will your next step be?
Maybe you've already put your trust in Christ, but you and God haven't been talking for a little while. Life's gotten in the way, or maybe like some shame has gotten in the way, or you just, you just haven't really been talking to him except before you eat. Carve out an hour. Take a half a day. Take a walk somewhere. Get, get alone in the closet somewhere. Pull out a journal and just start talking to him. Just writing a letter to him. Start conversing with the God of the universe. Move toward him, you see, because when you move toward him, you're ultimately transformed by him. You don't clean yourself up and then get in. You're drawn to him, and then he transforms you in his own presence, you see. That's how transformation happens. We move toward God, God transforms us. So move toward him. Bring your stuff. Talk real talk. This is the invitation that you have in Jesus Christ, that kind of intimacy with God. I want to pray for us, and then the band is going to come out, and we're going to sing one more song. So bow your head with me, and and let me go before the Father, Son, and Spirit for us. Father, these thoughts are too marvelous for us. They they are are too glorious for us to fully comprehend, so would you help us in, in, in our humanness? Could we grasp some of these concepts at least enough to take a step toward you? I pray for the people in the room who, who've never actually been brought into the union, the core communion with you that, that I believe is at the heart of this text. I pray for them that this morning the penny would drop, that this morning something would be clear, and, and the part of them that knows how needy they are for love would see that love being offered to them in the person of Jesus Christ, and they would say yes. They would receive it. And I pray for all of us, Lord, who are in various places in our relationship with you, in various places in our lives and in our ages and our stages and our maturity. The invitation for all of us is the same this morning. Take a step toward intimacy, toward those who are caught up in sin that's just keeping them from intimacy with you. Would you give them a desire to repent of that so that they may actually find what they're really looking for? And for those who've been caught up in duty, their relationship with you, would you melt their hearts and give them an affection for you that would draw them in? And may we all just, as we leave in a few minutes, just know more than we ever have. The center of reality is love, and that love is reaching out to us. And may we take a step toward you through Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.